Welcome to the Giving Experience Podcast. This podcast is a journey into our hearts and souls to grow more connected with our maker and one another through the practice of generosity in all things. You'll hear stories of how people have been impacted on both sides of the giving experience. Join us in childlike wonder as we explore and become more aware of where God is breaking through in these miracles that saturate the world around us every day. We are your hosts, Chad Hauer and Brent Tayette. And today we have an incredible guest that I'm so grateful that you joined us, Dan. Dan Grebe from Orlando, Florida. And Dan is as you're going to learn, just an incredible human being with an incredible story. I remember you telling me, you know, your whole life is like a made-for-TV movie sort of deal. <laughs> and you guys are going to get to hear a little glimpse of some of that today. And I'm super grateful for it. I was originally connected with Dan years ago, indirectly. One, you know, we're both part of a tribe, GoBundance. And you also helped a business partner and friend of mine, Seth Campbell, as your real estate agent in Orlando, Florida, and I know you directly helped them with their home purchase there. And I am just so grateful for having you on the show. I'd love for you to just take a moment to give a little background to our listeners today. So welcome to the show, Dan. Well, thank you for having me, guys. It's an honor to be here. My name is Dan Grebe. I live here in Orlando, Florida. What I am is a father, a husband, a child of God, a leader in my community, and someone that just wants to change the world, but start with myself. What I do for a living is I sell real estate here in Orlando, Florida. I'm a coach for a company called The Core, and I'm also a entrepreneur, an example to others. You know, I think it's important as people hear me speak that they recognize that I'm just like everybody else, a person on a journey in life who's decided to make my adversity my advantage. And using that large amount of adversity just means that I have a larger advantage than others. Mm -hmm. That is so good. And if you could give some history, I would love for our listeners to know a little bit more about what is that adversity that you've had growing up? Where did you come from to be where you are today? We can dive more into where you are today here shortly. Absolutely. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. I grew up in Long Island, New York to a single mom. My father was very abusive to my mom and to his children. You know, after several years of divorce, my mom was weary and tired. And my dad called one day and said, I'd love to see my boys. My mom did not think it was a good idea, but knew that we needed a, a father figure in our lives, specifically me. I'm the middle child. And she shipped us down to North Carolina from New York to go spend time with our dad. And when I arrived, I thought it was awesome. There was tanks running down, driving down the street. There were people jumping out of airplanes, jets flying in the air. We were right near a military base. And my brother thought it was too hot. At the end of the two-week visit, I asked my mom if I could stay the remainder of the summer. My brothers wanted to leave. My mom didn't think it would be a good idea for me to stay, but decided to let me do it anyway, knowing that I needed a father figure in my life. And after the summer was over, my father said I was not tough enough to go home and rip the phone out of the wall and ended up kidnapping me there for two years. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Over the course of those next two years, my dad beat me up you know, in horrendous ways and ways to teach me to be tough, punching me in the face, breaking my teeth, my eye sockets, my ribs, you know, my arms, and really making me feel broken as a person. Mm. You know, I, I thought at 11, 12, 13 years old, like, this is it. This is where my story ends. And by the grace of God, I was able to, to go home to be with my mom and my brothers. And when I arrived, my mom says, you know, Dan, uh, we were looking for you. We were going to come save you. Oh, and by the way, let me introduce you to your new stepfather. We had like, my 
my mom had gotten remarried while I was being held there. And, and my brothers are now calling this guy dad, our, our stepfather. Like the world had just gone on while I was there. So I left North Carolina feeling broken and arrived in New York feeling broken. And then it was like the next six years of my life were this constant lie that I told that I was this massive tough guy. Yeah, I was tough because, you know, I could survive the abuses of my father, but I'm a very sensitive person. And so for the next six years of my life, I just lied and made the world think I was a tough guy. But meanwhile, I'm super sensitive. I tell people as a joke, my favorite movie is The Sound of Music, for God's sake. I cry every time Jenny leaves and comes back in Forrest Gump. And meanwhile, the whole world thinks I'm like the world's hardest man. You got me fooled. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, what's crazy is when you start living a lie, the worst thing that you could want to happen does happen. People fall in love with that person that you're making them believe that you are. And what it does is drives the person you are further away. Because now you're afraid if they ever found out that I actually cared, they wouldn't love me anymore because they love this fake version of me. Hmm. So then I became kind of manic and crazy about mattering. I wanted to matter. I wanted to do something that mattered. So I ended up becoming an All-American in lacrosse. And just before my 19th birthday, I got hit in the head with a bottle and had my temporal artery severed and almost bled to death and died losing all potential opportunities that came from that lacrosse scholarship. And what was crazy about that is that here I stand as a non-believer, you know, believer in God, which I'll talk about that in just a second. I stand there with no real relationship with God, but saying, God, how could you bring me from being abused and almost killed by my father to this mountaintop of being an All-American in lacrosse to only knock me off? Hmm. How hmm. cruel can you be? You know, I believe there was a God, and I did believe that, that God was good, and this was my belief system around him even in that time, and that because he was good, that if I was ever lost, he would look for me. But to find me, he would have to go to the deepest, darkest jungles, scariest places in the world, and he would because he was good. And then within that deep, dark jungle, there'd be this gigantic, dark, nasty cave that he would have to enter, and he would because he was good. And as he entered, he'd have to choose between all these different combs that he'd have to choose. And he would choose the right one because he was good. And then after he got through these different combs, he would have to like squat down to walk through. And he would because he was good. And then he would get to another area of choices to make where he'd have to crawl on his hands and knees. And he would crawl on his hands and knees because he was good. But then he would get to another decision-making point where he'd have to crawl on his you know, belly like an army low crawl. And he'd have to crawl through feces and rats and snakes and the dirtiest and nasty of things, but he would because he was good. And that I would be so far, so deep in this such a dirty, nasty place that no one would come, but he would because he was good. But the only way that he could know I was there is he'd have to come face to face with me to find me, and he would. And then when he did, he would get nose to nose to me. He would recognize it was me, and I would recognize that it was him. And he would say, oh, it's just you. Hmm. And he would not want me and he would leave. He would backtrack and leave me there. And I felt that way the majority of my life until I had a religious conversion. Wow, that's... Oh my goodness, yeah. You shared a lot of hurt there. So was the religious conversion your path to healing? Absolutely, yeah. I, again, you guys said it at the beginning. So for the listeners, you know, they told you my life as a made-for-TV movie. So I'm going to tell you. 
you know, I ended up moving to Florida because I had an opportunity to maybe play football, even though I couldn't play any athletics because of this head injury. There was a school in Florida that was willing to overlook it. So I come to Florida and I can't even walk on to the college football team until I've lived here for a year because I needed in-state tuition. So I worked at Disney for 300 days straight without a single day off, worked oh overtime. Goodness. But what was I going to do? I didn't want to get in trouble. I was starting yeah. my life over. I came from New York to Florida. Like I'm just going to try to save up and make it happen. I had no family, no friends, no support, just had to do it, right? I figured the best way to stay out of trouble was that way. Well, after the 300 days and it was getting closer to me, being able to go to school, I had no place to really live. So I went around campus and looked for these like roommate wanted signs where you like pulled somebody's number off a sign. And I met this guy and he was a college student from Kentucky and his dad had bought a house and then he had to rent out the other rooms and they let me move into him. And he was super kind. He was super awesome. I ended up living with him for a number of years. And then one day him and I were in downtown Orlando you know, at a bar, drinking and dancing. And I was dancing with this random girl and he was dancing with his girlfriend. And right in the middle of his girlfriend dancing with him, I guess she saw a more attractive guy and just stopped dancing with him and started dancing with another attractive guy. I guess that was his breakup. And I couldn't really see what was going on because I was, you know, dancing with this little girl. And, and I looked over and she's gone. And then a minute later, he's gone. And he's a little guy from Kentucky, and, you know, I grew up a little rougher, and I'm, I was always, like, protecting him and keeping an eye on him. And I look up. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I can't find him anywhere. And I'm, like, looking all around downtown Orlando, and I, I drove there, and I, I can't find him. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. And I ended up driving home. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, this guy shows up, and he had walked from downtown Orlando to our house, which was significantly far away. And of course, I'm like waiting up like a nervous mom or a nervous housewife. First thing I said was, hey, man, what are you doing? Like, where were you? I was scared, you know, all that stuff. And he just blew up on me. You know, I don't want you living here anymore. You're not my dad. Screw you. And it was kicking me out. And I was like, listen, you can't kick me out. So I was just going back to bed. I knew his parents. I lived with them for multiple years. He wasn't going to be able to just kick me out. So I went to bed. And I, when I go to bed, I hear the garage door roll up. And he's like rolling my motorcycle outside. So I go out there to stop him and he throws my motorcycle down. So I grabbed him and threw him on the hood of my car. And then he starts trying to whip off my windshield wipers. So then I went to like put him on the ground. And when I went to put him on the ground, he like put his arm down and ended up breaking his arm. And, and he like got up. I could tell he was hurt. He got up and ran away. It just was never the same. So I, I went to work that night. I was a manager at a valet parking place and I was talking to a guy and he said, you down, Dennis. Yeah, I broke Steve's arm and feel really bad about it. And I'm going to have to find a new place to live. He's like, well, no problem, man. Stay at my place. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, my parents paid for the summer and I'm going home with my family. So two months, stay at my place for free. And I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. So I stayed with this guy's Greg's room and he lived with Cortland. He lived with Jason. I lived with another guy. And then the apartment across from them were Christian guys. These guys were Christian guys and the, and the apartment below were Christians. So I said, okay. And of course, because I was not responsible, summer was over and Greg shows back up and I got no place to live. Hmm. He's like, what do you, hey man, did you find a place to live? And I'm like, no. You know, so Courtney's like, where are you going to go? And I'm like, I have no idea, but I'll figure it out. You know, I'll stay in my car if I have to, I'll leave. And Courtland says to me, hey man, I have a trundle bed. So if you don't know what a trundle bed is, it's like a bed that has a bed under it. You pull out one and there's like yeah. two beds side by side. Yeah. And he goes, you could just stay with me for a while. So I lived in the room with Cortland 
you know, him, him right on top of me, like on the trundle bed. And Cortland was like the most gentle, coolest, loving, kind guy. And these guys had their parents paying for them to go to college and stuff. And I had to do it all myself. So I would work multiple jobs and go to college. And I would get up like clockwork and go to work. I never missed a day of work. And I owned a car, a Honda CRX. Like I was my most proud thing because I bought it myself. But I had to buy it at buy here, pay here. And buy here, pay here is like you buy it there, you pay for it there. And every Friday, every week, you have to make your car payment. Hmm. And uh, one day I was like super, super sick on a Friday. So I called them up and said, hey, guys, I'm sick. You know, I've had the car for like two years already. Um, could I just make my payment tomorrow? And like, no problem. Just bring it in tomorrow. So I went back to bed, went to sleep, and got up early on Saturday before work to go and pay them and then go to work, and my car is gone. No way. Oh, when I walk no. out there, I'm like, I know what happened. Like, yeah. I'm not stupid. And I'd already been, you know, dealing with stress, dealing with life, being on my own, you know, dealing with my daddy issues, you know, never really sharing with anybody all that, still lying about how tough I am. And I used to, like, once a month, lock myself away and just cry, weep for a whole day, just cry, let nobody see it. Well, I was overwhelmed at, you know, 19 years old, and I just went to bed, went to bed and started crying. And Cortland could hear that I was crying. And he's like, hey, man, are you crying? I'm like, no, I'm not crying. He's like, yeah, you sound like you're crying. I'm like, I'm not crying. I'm not crying. You're crying. Yeah, exactly. He's like, well, what's going on? And I'm like, they repossessed my car. They told me I'd be okay, and they repossessed my car. He's like, what? We could do something about that. And I'm like, no, they're, they're gone. I can't afford to get it. You have to pay for it. Oh. And he's like, well, how much is it? And I don't know. It was like $17,000 to get this car out or something. So I was planning on going to sleep and just giving up on the day. And Cortland woke up and went and emptied all the money out of his bank account and bought my car for me. Wow. Oh $17,000. Yeah, whatever. 11000 17000 Whatever it was, it was more than I could pay in a long time. And he shows back up a couple hours later, and he's like, come outside. And I'm like, what? And he's like, your car. I paid for it for you. And that was like his own money plus his tuition money. You know, he didn't have super rich parents. He like had to figure it out. And Cortland paid for my car. And it was like the first time anyone had ever showed me unconditional love in my life. Wow. Because I was like, you got to take it back. I can't pay for this. And he's like, no, it's yours. Pay me when you can. And it took me years for me to pay Cortland. But that act of him doing that and the way these guys treated me and the way they talked, they asked me to go to church. And I, I went to church with them. And on May 5th of 1996, I heard the, what they call the call in religious circles. And I made a profession of faith. And my life has never been the same since. That is incredible. What a, what a beautiful story of generosity hearing in that. And I have the gift of being able to know you from afar here. You know, here we are in Washington State. You're in Florida. I've been able to follow you kind of from a distance. I, I'm really grateful for our time together, Dan, to really just have a more intimate and get to know your story deeper here today. Because, man, the things you have done... You you came on a, a Zoom leadership meeting for us within organization Five Doors a year or two ago. And I remember just being so blown away and impressed by you, Dan. I was just like, man, this guy's freaking intense. He's He's got it together. And you shared in that how, you know, association is just so important to you. And we're going to dive into this for our listeners here shortly. One of the miraculous things that you've done is not only completing and competing in a full Ironman yourself, but even more significantly, 
you and I know you've had, you know, publicity across all different news channels across the nation about this. Like you helped the first Down syndrome kid ever to race and complete a full Ironman, which is mind-boggling and such a beautiful story and I'm I'm so excited for our listeners to be able to hear about the generosity that you were then able to share and lead through that journey but when you were on a leadership call with us you had mentioned just how important the power of association is and you were just like if somebody isn't a level 10 in you know the financial area of their life or the fitness area of their life the spiritual level whatever it is you were like I'm not following them. They got to be like high quality because what I took away from you is the high standards that you hold for yourself in that that Jim Rohn statement Brent and I were talking about prior to, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with, right? That's right, yeah. And I just look at that and I'm like, holy cow, what an insane transformation. And look at who you are today and all that you've achieved. Could you share with our audience a little bit about this Ironman experience of helping Chris to become the first ever Ironman through Down syndrome. And then maybe a, a bit more into that about knowing that character of Jesus and like, hey, here's a level 10 person that I can really dive into relationship with and is going to make me better as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd be happy to talk about, you know, how I helped Chris out, but I think I have to set the table for that a little bit. And I'd like to cover some of the things you just said about like mentors and people that I allow into my life, because there's a context that needs to be heard underneath that. So if you're okay with me kind of shifting gears and then I'll get back to that. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. You know, as a young man, I made a decision when I was super young, about 16 years old, that if God ever gave me, and again, this is like a God that I didn't know of, just this idea of goodness, you know, if God ever gave me an opportunity to be a father and be a husband, that I would do it differently. And the reason why I say that is because my mom couldn't afford counseling for me. And when you're, you know, poor Irish Catholic, you go to see the nuns. And um, I had to see the nuns for counseling. And one of the nuns, you know, this is one of the greatest leadership lessons I, I share with people. And I hope people really take this to heart and write this down um, as I talk about it, you know, the nun said something to me that shook me for three years and made it so that I couldn't love anyone and felt even more unlovable from 16 to 19 until I had this religious conversion. And they said to me in counseling something that was meant to be healing to me, meant to make me feel better, but they, they missed a key component to the conversation and it put me in a tailspin for a long time. So I'm going to tell your listeners what it is, and then I'm going to tell them what they should have said. And then I want your listeners, you know, whether they listen to it, you know, today, tomorrow, or years in the future, when they do hear me talk about it, I want them verbally out loud to themselves say, I'm going to make sure I don't make that mistake. I'm going to remember this. Okay. So I'm sitting at the, and the counselors, you know, with these nuns. And one of the nuns tells me, Dan, hurt people, hurt people. Hmm. So here's what I heard them say when they said, hurt people, hurt people. Your dad was a monster. Therefore, you're going to be a monster. And because he hurt you, you're going to hurt other people. Mm, You'll never be a father because you'll abuse your children. You'll never be a husband because you'll abuse your wife. The God of the universe told me that through his religious leadership. 
That's what I heard. I felt so broken, so terrible, so unlovable, worse than I had already before I'd gone in hearing that one statement. Hmm. It put me in such a terrible tailspin that as soon as somebody told me that they loved me or they appreciated me, I had to eject from the relationship immediately hmm. because I knew I was damaged goods and I would hurt them because the nuns told me that. Here's the one thing that I want your listeners to promise me is that moving forward, anytime they have a difficult conversation with their spouse, their children, any type of leadership at work, anyone that's you know, where you have a level of influence with the words you use, that when you use those words and they're striking, they're difficult, it's tenuous, they're stress in the air, any of that, when you're done, you ask this question, what did you hear? What are you taking away from that? Because if those nuns would have said, my child, what did you hear when I said hurt people, hurt people? I would have said that I'm a monster and I'm going to hurt people. Hmm. And they would have said, no, 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 my child. No, no, no. What I was saying is your father was bad. And that's why he behaved this way, probably because something has occurred to him. So so don't feel bad about you being the problem. He was the problem. Mm-hmm. I could have I got that. But for three years, I felt unlovable because nobody asked me what I was taking away from the conversation. What are you hearing me say right now? Yeah. How many times in our lives do you think, about that as a leader could you say to yourself i missed that opportunity and yeah. i probably wounded somebody with a conversation that actually with good meaning yeah good intentions but missed opportunity to share the hope right yeah here's the reality but what do you do with it right so when you talk about me and my associations now what i want you to know is my goals were simple i wanted to be a great husband be a great father i wanted to do something that mattered with my life being that I almost passed away twice. I want if that's the like angel on one side, how I say it, I want to change my family tree. Mm-hmm. The devil on the other side says, I don't want to grow up to be like my dad. Mm. So everything is, how do I change my family tree and how do I not grow up to be like my dad? So therefore I can't hang out with people that live a life that is contrary to being a good husband, being a good father, being a good member of my community, being a good leader. I can't hang out with people that, Behave like my dad. You know, if you're 40 years old and you're still getting drunk, I can't hang out with you. If you are a guy that's cheating on your wife, I can't hang out with you. Now, it doesn't, you know, if you can get your stuff right and get yourself figured out, like we can talk, I'm all about forgiveness and redemption. I've never done anything right in my life. But if you're not doing the right things, I can't be around you. I can't be influenced by you because I don't want to grow up to be like my dad. You know, we tell our children, if you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. We tell them, who you hang out with affects you. And then we grow up as adults and we start believing that that stuff doesn't apply anymore. It applies more when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. Whoever is influencing you is going to affect you. Whatever you tolerate, you become. And I'm just not going to tolerate knuckleheaded behavior because I don't want to be a knucklehead. I don't want to ruin my family like my father ruined his family. I don't want to ruin my family like my brothers ruined their families. I want to be the one that changes it all. And yeah, sometimes it seems a little mean when I say, hey, man, you're not acting right. If you're not acting right, I can't be around you. And then I'm not around you anymore. No matter the consequence, I'm just not going to grow up to be like my dad. And I have to change my family tree. And the only way that I can do that is the people I spend time with and the books I read. 
Wow, that's powerful. I'm dying to know. So you had this amazing life transformative event in who you were associating with, literally living with, right? You got Cortland who, amazing radical generosity that prompts you to enter into life in this Christian kind of brotherhood I'm hearing you describe, right? Yep. So what was next for you? What led you that next step on the path towards this life transformative process? So I got saved at what's referred to as a Southern Baptist church. Southern Baptist churches have like a whole program around the salvation process. And, you know, for those that do not have a religious perspective, I'm not talking about like juggling snakes or any of the weirdo stuff. I'm just (laughs) talking about this idea that the God of the universe sent his son to die on my behalf. You know, and I equate this idea of transforming your life from the inside out to like the idea in a secular conversation, like if you and I were standing on the side of a riverbed and it was swelling up and the water was getting faster and faster and faster. And there's a bunch of people around. They're like, Hey Dan, don't jump in that water. Hey Dan, don't jump in that water. And I'm like, I think I can swim in that water. Like, no, no, don't jump in that water. It'll sweep you downstream and you'll die. Like, no, 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 I, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And everybody tell me not to do it. And then just to prove them all wrong, I jump in the water. And as soon as I jump in the water, I realize I'd made a terrible mistake and the water sweeps me downstream and everybody can't help me because I'm stuck now. But some random person who I've never met, I don't know who he is, jumps in the water, grabs me, uses all their strength, grabs me and throws me up on a rock, saves my life. But in the effort to do that, dies. If that was actually a real story, what would you guys do? I would owe my life to that person. I would, I would... Okay. You know, take their family in mm-hmm. as my own responsibility and honor them every opportunity I had, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You guys would say I, you'd feel some responsibility to live for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you don't know who this person is, so what would you do? You'd learn as much as you can. Of who, who was that person, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you would try to find out who he was. And so if you could find out who he was and his parents were alive, what would you do? spend time with them yeah you you would go up to them and you would thank them right yeah and you would tell them about your commitment right yeah absolutely and and you would try to live a better life not for you but for them right yeah that's the whole message of the gospel like there was this guy that died for me i have a responsibility to live for him now and now I need to know everything about this guy. Like, where did he grow up? Who was he? Why did he do this? What was his character? Who were his parents? Where did he go when he died? You know, why would he do this for me? How do I live a big life for him? How do I show him my gratitude for the rest of my life? How do I show others that he would do that for them too? How do I let them know that they're worthy? Because for me, When I made my religious transformation, I didn't understand anything. I knew there was a God, and I knew God was good. You know, but one person told me right at that time in my life, long before people need to know that they need a Savior, they need to know that they're worthy of one. No matter what you've done in your life, you're still good enough. The story of Jesus' actual crucifixion, you know, him literally dying at the hands of the people he's going to one day save. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's these other thieves on a cross right there with them. You know, people that had committed crimes that if you do this, we will crucify you. And they had done that and they were being crucified and they didn't believe that Jesus could save them or do much for them. And one of them says, are you the one that can save me? I'm using all like 
secular language here, guys. Yeah. You know, are you the one that could save me? And he says, I am. One of the thieves says, I believe you. And, and, and the thief is right about to die. He's in the realm of death. Like, it's going to happen. It's not a question of if, it's when. He's dying a terrible death on a cross. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So what that is a symbolism of is even if you have committed crimes against humanity, crimes against the law, done it all wrong, messed it all up, gotten it all bad, if you're not dead and you turn your face towards him, he is good enough and right enough to, to redeem you, to take you in. Because his compassion for us is nothing like our compassion for each other. Mm-hmm. Our compassion for each other is weak and thin and pallid. But when the Bible talks about Jesus being moved with compassion, it talks about the most purest being ripped open and laid bare for the benefit of us. You know, it says in the Bible, when God says, come to me, he's not saying, come to me like perfect. He's saying, come to me wounded, broken, and I'll love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. When I hear that stuff, that speaks to me, the broken one, to the one that didn't think they were good enough. So as I navigate life now, even in talking to you guys today, it goes through these lenses of how do I change my family tree? How do I not grow up to be like my dad? How do I serve this guy that saved me? Mm-hmm. Because I'm the one that chose to jump in that river knowing that it could sweep me away, and it in fact did. And him knowing that he shouldn't have jumped in that river did for the sole purpose of saving me. Yeah. Not humanity, me. And and that message is for every man, woman, and child listening to this. Like he jumped in that river for you solely. He did it for you personally. Now Thank God I get to benefit from that, and millions and millions and billions of people have benefited from that death, but if you were the only one, he still would have done it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that rings so real and so true to me. And you can tell your life's been gripped by a deep understanding of that grace and that power that comes not only from the sacrifice, but overcoming sin and death and his resurrection, right? And that the compassion that you are now filled with, you know, him sending the gift of his spirit that lives within us, those that love and follow Jesus, right? And if you look at your story, all the things that you've been involved with now since age 19 in that conversion, right? Can you walk us through how that compassion has grown and how it specifically led you to this relationship you've got with Chris? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have these three guiding principles I live by. One is that life is 10% about what happens and 90% how you respond. The second one says you are at the place, at the time, experiencing what you're supposed to be experiencing, going through what you're supposed to be going through at the exact time in your life you're supposed to be going through it, with whom you're supposed to be going through it, as preordained by the God of the universe. And I call that my valley season principle. And the idea is that when you're in the valley and it's difficult and hard, you should ask yourself these two questions. One, God, what are you preparing me for? Two, God, what are you trying to teach me? And then the third principle I live by is today's the first day of the rest of your life. And that means, you know, like it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. Today, you're a day closer to losing the weight, getting out of debt, accomplishing that goal, reuniting with that person, getting forgiveness for something, giving forgiveness for something, you know, whatever it is. Today's the first day of that that happening. 
So I lived my life through those principles. I woke up one day, I was 300 pounds. I had accomplished everything I wanted to as a father and a husband, a religious follower of Christ and in a business. And I was thinking, how do I lose this weight? And someone told me that an Ironman was a good way to do that. I said, well, what's that? And they said, well, you swim 2.4 miles, you bike for 112, and then you run a 26.2 marathon at the end for a total of 140.6 miles. And I'm like, wow, that is a crazy challenge. <laughs> and I said, well, what do most people do? And they said, well, they train for a year and then they do one. And I said, I'm not like most people. I'm going to train for a year and then I'm going to do 10 of them. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So I did 10 of them all around the world, Dubai, New Zealand, Florida, you know, Dallas, Mexico, Puerto Rico. I mean, literally all over. Dan, if I could interrupt real quick, yeah. I just want to say thank you because Brent doesn't realize this, but <laughs> part of the purpose of this podcast is for me to subliminally convince him to compete in an Ironman someday. So thank you for being part of this. <laughs> uh, I can't wait till Brent realizes. Got it. Love it. So I completed these 10 Ironmen and I woke up feeling unfulfilled. And I just was like, how do I thank God for regaining my health in my 40s? And his answer was simple. Serve my people. Hmm. I'm like, that's it. I need to help someone else become an Ironman. And so at the time, the only people you could lead an Ironman were blind people or incapacitated people. And incapacitated people are impossible to find because they're incapacitated and no one's going to let a stranger lead an incapacitated person through an Ironman. It's always a family member. It's always a close family friend. So I started looking for a blind person, you know, everywhere. And I found one, you know, I always tell this joke. What do you think is the hardest part about leading a blind person through an Ironman? What? <laughs> I'm dying to know. Yeah. Finding a blind person that's willing to do an Ironman is the hardest <laughs> part. Okay? It's incredibly difficult. Most blind people are sane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. So I found this girl that lived in the Keller Williams. And she lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Her name is McLean Hermes. And I flew up there, met her dad. I knew him kind of a little bit. Spent some time with McLean and her dad. Did a swim with her. We became friends. And I was like, hey, McLean, do you trust me? She said, I trust you. I said, would you do anything for me? She said, I'll do anything for you. I said, are we friends? She said, we're friends. I said, will you do a Ironman with me? And she said, hell no. <laughs> so I felt like... The goal was never going to happen. <laughs> and so I was like, this isn't going to happen. And I was like upset about it, flying back. And then I found out Special Olympics was like doing a meet and greet with my triathlon team. And I missed the meeting because I was with her. And I'm like, I can't even help Special Olympics athletes do triathlons. I'm never going to find anybody that wants to do an Ironman. And, you know, I just wanted to serve God and, and show my gratitude to him. And I wanted to serve his people. And out of nowhere, I get a call that there's this young man with Down syndrome that has gotten too fast for his unified partner. That's what we call guides in Special Olympics. And he was doing what are called sprint triathlons, little 10-mile triathlons, a little 400-yard swim, 7-mile bike, 3-mile run. You know, you could do those in like an hour. And he had gotten too fast for her, and they needed somebody that was really caring, a lot of fun, super strong. And they're like, that's Dan Grieb. And so I meet this boy, and I start training with him. And I'm like, I could help Chris become an Ironman. And how old was he at this time? He was 19. Okay. And, or 20. And his dad would refer to me as Crazy Uncle Dan <laughs> because I do crazy things. I do these Ironman and crazy long swims and 100 mile bike rides on the weekend and run 30 miles for fun and all this stuff. And he's like, You're crazy. You'll never do that. Chris is never going to 
do that. He's crazy. You're crazy, dude. So I never really asked him, but I started like slowly being like, hey, can Chris do this with me? Can Chris do that with me? And his dad's like, yeah, because for Chris, he'd been told his whole life he wouldn't amount to much. He didn't have a lot of friends. I was like his first, what you would call typical friend, person without a disability. And I was inviting him to my house and doing fun stuff with him. And Chris just wanted to hang out with his crazy uncle Dan. So if I'd say, Chris, you want to go do this? He'd say, yes. And we would do that. Well, one morning I asked his dad, hey, listen, can I take Chris to do this swim? It's no big deal. We're just going to swim in a lake at like six o'clock in the morning, really in the dark. We're going to see this light. We're going to swim towards the light. By the time we swim back, the sun will be up. There's not that many alligators. Can we do this? <laughs> no big not deal. that many alligators. <laughs> yeah. And his dad's like, I don't know why I'm saying yes to you right now. This sounds crazy, Dan. I'm like, don't worry. He'll be safe. Chris will be tethered to me. He's not going to drown unless I drown, and I don't plan on drowning. So he's like, okay. So Chris swims across this lake and back with me and finishes. And when you finish the swim, you get to sign this guy's house, believe it or not. Super cool. It's called Lucky's Lake Swim here in Orlando. So when we finished, Chris signed the wall, Chris World Champ. And his dad said, Chris, what do you think you'd be world champ at? I don't know. And I had to leave. So they got in the car and, and his dad said, Chris, do you think you could be an Iron Man like your crazy Uncle Dan? And Chris said, yes, because he wanted to do anything I do. What do I have to do? And he said, oh, it's no big deal, buddy. Just a little bit more than you're doing now. And that became the journey. And then for the next year, I trained Chris, faced a lot, a lot of adversity, a lot of people telling me that Chris couldn't do it, a lot of people I had to step away from, friendships I had to step away from because they didn't believe in him. Trained him, a lot of training. It's really, really tough, really hard, a lot of pressure. And then it started like gaining momentum. I can only imagine all the, all the pushback and resistance against that of just saying like, you're going to kill this kid. This isn't healthy. He's not built to do this. What are you trying to accomplish here? And I don't know if you are hearing those things. I mean, that's a thought that I would have. I already know the end of the story where it's like, hey, Chris is an Iron Man. So it's incredible to be able to look back and not have to second guess it. But while you guys were on that, just that I know your mantra of just 1% better each day. Like, wow, what an incredible, miraculous experience to be able to say we had such faith and hope and just believed in continuing to put one foot in front of the other, literally, and watch it all come into fruition. Yeah, that's exactly right. We did the training. We faced a lot of adversity. But here's how we know it was always a God thing, right? I knew I was doing God's work, so I always just kept moving in that direction. And I'm not giving up on him, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going and just keep working towards it. And Chris, it was the same way. It was really just me and his dad the whole time that believed that he could do it. And we just kept going. You know, of course, Chris struggled during the race. And at one point, Chris thought about quitting. And I had to call his dad out to the run. Because we're talking religion in this podcast, this was one of the moments that I'll never forget. Nick came out, started talking to Chris. And, you know, it was like, take off the tether. And I'm like, can't take off the tether. Chris will stop running if I take off the tether. He's like, no, Dan, it's okay. Take off the tether. I'm like, no. And we like had a disagreement. And then I started walking and I started crying. Like I knew the race was over. Mm. We were like at mile, you know, like 13, 15. And Chris was done. And he was fighting me. He's fighting the tether. And then Nick gave him a hug, walks up to me, gives me the tether back, says, put the tether back on. And he goes to walk off and he turns around and he says this like out loud. God sent angels to be with my son. I'm going to let these angels take care of him. Say out loud. He like referred to me, like me, you're the angel. And I had a bunch of people following along, trying to help you, whatever, but it was my responsibility. And it was like, he referred to me as an angel right now. 
And it gave me such an uplift of hope and uplift that we could do this, that it made me come up with this new idea of treating Chris, which was instead of having him run for time, I made him count cones with me. On the documentary, they talk about that was like what changed it all. And Chris started running faster and his brain started thinking up to what we were doing. And before you know it, Chris finished, you know, in Ironman, you have 17 hours to finish. If you don't finish in 17 hours, it's over. They shut the scoreboard off, take the lights off, you're done. Well, Chris and I finished in 16 hours and 45 minutes. Wow. It was magical. And here's what we knew. I knew the moment Chris and I jumped in that water that the whole Down syndrome world, the whole intellectually disabled world, the families, the people that had loved ones with disabilities like Chris, they were all holding their breath. Please, God, please, God, let him finish. I want the world to know that my child, my daughter, my uncle, my brother, my sister, my whatever, my relative has meaning, has value. They can do something in our world. And Chris is going to prove that. And I felt that burden the whole time, every step, every swim, every bike mile, every adversity we would face. I would feel that burden like they were counting on us. And we crossed that finish line and it was like the world just opened, like a roadblock that has been up for all of eternity just got knocked down. And the next morning I wake up and I've got thousands and thousands of thank yous on Instagram, Facebook, text message, wherever. In every language you can think of, Egyptian, Portuguese, Spanish, Russian, German, all over the world, people saying, thank you. I have a relative with Down syndrome. You've, you've proven that they can be meaningful. They can do something. And here's all the tie-ins I want to kind of do as I end and kind of go to questions for you guys. Is what prepared me to be that person that that was at? My adversity. My adversity season was my dad's. He get in the head and head with a bottle. That was God preparing me to one day change the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Cortland paying for my car and showing me that level of generosity. Do you know that Cortland Fuquay right now is in seminary? I pay for him to go to seminary. Not all of it, I love but that. I write a check oh, every month so for Cortland to go to seminary. Like the world has changed. You know, the world is different. And now today, as I speak, I'm training a young lady who is 17 years old, to be the youngest person on record to ever complete an Ironman, and she has autism. It's like, how is it that God gave me the ability to do all of this? Adversity. My adversity is what taught me the lesson. My response to adversity opened the door. Yes. Mm -hmm. As I was thinking in preparation for this interview today, one of the thoughts that I had is Psalms 41 one says, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. And I was thinking about the work that you've done with Chris and it's transformational in that I'm thinking, holy crap, like Chris isn't weak. Chris is like the polar opposite of weak. And he's what many of us would initially at first glance of view as weak. And yet, as you had regard for Chris and poured into him, it's amazing. Like you've impacted the whole world, this whole community and given hope for everyone with Down syndrome of raising the bar of what's possible. And you've proven it. It's not just a theory or an idea. And also through that is, okay, so what does that look like to be blessed by you giving regard to the weak and living life and supporting and helping 
the week, so to speak. How has that transformed you? What did you learn and how were you impacted, changed through this experience? I mean, a million ways, you know, I will tell you that I am the weak one and people like Chris have blessed me in so many ways because they teach me how I could behave if I got rid of my ego. People with intellectual disabilities, they have these things like Chris keeps no records of wrongs. I could be mean to him or tough to him and put him through this terrible workout. The next day I'm zero again. He's forgotten all about it. Hmm. Two minutes after an event is over, Chris is good with it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, what if we behave that way? Chris leads everything with a hug. If Chris is happy, he hugs you. Mm-hmm. If you're happy, he hugs you. If you're sad, he hugs you. If he's sad, he hugs you. If it's the first time he's seen you that day, he hugs you. If it's the I second time he's seen you that day, he hugs you. If you're going goodbye, he hugs. What if we all just lived a life where we just hugs first, ask questions second? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I've learned more from Chris and people like Chris than I'll ever teach them. I've learned more about God through Chris and people like Chris because in some communities, they regard people with Down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities as divinity. Hmm. They have the nature of God. Hmm. You know, they don't keep records of wrong. They love first. They see the best in you always. They don't compare themselves against you. They just let you be seen. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And what would the world be like if we just behave more like that? And I think about that a lot you know, when I deal with them, I mean, and, and watch how God uses the craziest of circumstances. So the girl McLean Hermes that I told you about, the blind young lady who wouldn't run an Ironman with me. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. saw my story with Chris, decided to start doing triathlons. And now she's going to the U.S. Paralympics in France as a Paralympic triathlete. Wow. wow. That's awesome. And she's doing Ironman Florida with me in two years. She's going to do an Ironman with me. Wow. So now I have another two years before I can retire. <laughs> I've led McLean through a Disney marathon. I've led Adrian, the young lady who I'm training and raising money for now, through marathons. You know, I, I've helped multiple people with Down syndrome complete endurance races. I've led a person with fetal alcohol syndrome. I pushed somebody in a wheelchair through a marathon. I can't believe how big the world got for me when I stopped making the world about me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this podcast is called The Giving Experience, right? It's like God calls us to give just as he provided that example to us of just the ultimate generosity. I've come to learn that he doesn't do it just for the person that we're giving to by any means. Like he does it because by doing that, it's the posture of our heart. And we end up learning so much more and being transformed through that. So I'd love to hear anything more about I know you've got countless examples of how this has transformed you and just helped you to better understand the true character of God and get to know him, like bringing it all the way back to the beginning of how you were talking about this. If if you were drowning in a river, right? And somebody just randomly came in and saved your life, like you would do everything you could to just learn more about who that person was that sacrificed their life for you and their character and trying to live an honorable life that glorifies them. So can you share another example with us, if you don't mind? I know we're running long here, but this is just too good, Dan. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I want to build on the statement I just said, I can't believe how big the world got for me when I stopped making the world about me. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the like, one of the greatest mysteries of our faith is that When we serve other people, our world opens up because God 
honors the service of other people. And, you know, but you think about two stories in the Bible that really, really impact me in there. They're referred to as parables, they're referred to as stories, but I'm just going to kind of really bring it down to the idea of this. So Jesus is out, and some religious leaders come up to him one day and says, hey, can you help us out? Jesus says, no. And he says, well, why not? Well, because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Well, Jesus, we didn't know you were hungry. Yeah, but when I didn't have any clothes, you didn't give me any clothes. We never saw you with no clothes, Jesus, like we didn't know. Well, you know, when I had no place to rest, you didn't offer me a place to sleep. Well, we never knew you needed a place to sleep. And like Jesus points over, he says, not me, them. What you do unto the least of these, you also do unto me. And, you know, that's like a value statement. Like people really do matter. And it's one of those value statements when you hear that, the idea of that is people matter. But you do recognize that like on our worst days, we are the worst of these. Like we are. When I'm when I'm feeling bad about myself and I've messed up and I can't believe I'm so stupid and why did I make that mistake for the thousandth time and look what I did to screw things up. Like I put myself over there as the leper that nobody else will touch, that nobody else wants. And that's when Jesus says, somebody needs to go help that guy. When you're helping Dan Grieve, you're helping me. And so I need to remember that sometimes I'm the instrument that God uses to serve others, but sometimes I'm the person that's receiving the service through the instrument. And I have to be okay with both. And so I think about that, and then I think about this other concept or parable, and it's called the parable of the prodigal son. And again, I want to tell the story through the lens of Dan Grieb. And the idea of the story is, is there's a son who feels like he's just not getting his father's favor. He deserves his father's favor, but he's not getting it. For whatever reason, he's not getting it. And his father, you know, back in the times of Jesus, men lived to be really old. It was not uncommon to live 120, 30 years, right? So you're talking a really old father. And his son's just mad. Like, Dad, you don't understand. I'm supposed to get that. I did this. I did this work. You don't understand, Dad. And the father's like, I'm sorry, son. I just can't do that for you. And the son says, well, you know what, Dad? Screw it. I'm going to go to the big city. And I'm going to go make my way. Now, the idea of the big city, gentlemen, Anytime you hear of anybody going to the big city, does that sound like a good idea or a bad idea? Usually it's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, because like that's where the trouble is, right? So the father does not want his son to go to the big city because he knows what he's going to do. He knows what's waiting for him there. But he, he lets his son go. And his son goes to the big city. And every day his son is in the big city, his father gets up every day and goes to work and works the field. But every day he does that, his heart is broken because his boy is in the big city being victimized, doing bad stuff, things that are hurting him, hurting his soul, his character. You know, he could die there. His soul is being crushed. He's being taken advantage of. And he knows this is happening, but he can't stop his son from behaving this way. He has to just let it run its course. So he works. He does the right things every day. And he's just burdened. He's just oh, I just, I just, my son, I miss my boy, I love my boy. And I want you to think about this, this old, old man, one day he goes out to the field to start working and he's working and he's tired, he's sweating and he's hungry and his heart is broken and he's just a mess. And he's in the moment of working and out of just the corner of the corner of his eye, he sees on the horizon somebody walking. 
And if you're a father who longs after your son, you don't have to be able to see that well or see that far or distinguish. You know your boy. Mm-hmm. You know your boy when he's miles away. And he says, oh, my God, my boy is home. So in the Bible, you hear this idea that he does what? What do you guys he read about down. the prodigal son and the father? Yeah, that's what we hear. But I, I think we forget what that looks like. So I want to paint that picture. So here he is working, and he sees his boy on the horizon, far away. In our age, I want you to think about an 80-year-old man. An 80-year-old man throws his tool in the air, takes off running. Old people running in the 80s is dangerous, right? (laughs) They're stumbling. They can fall down. He's running with reckless abandon. He doesn't care if he falls down and gets hurt. My boy is home. Spit is flying out of his mouth. Tears are running down his eyes. My boy is home. My boy is home. My boy is home. And he gets to his son. And his son says, Dad, I've done it all wrong. I've done so terribly. Please, just let me sleep with the pigs. And the father says, no, absolutely not. My son is home. We will celebrate you being home. That is the God of the universe and how he views you when you turn your way back. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, oh, Dan, you finally decided to get your crap straight. Come over here and sit down. Let's talk about it. He runs like an 80-year-old man, willing to fall down, tears down his eyes, reckless abandon. Why? Because you have turned your face towards him. Mm-hmm. I think about that, and I think about, I'm the prodigal son. And the God of the universe turned towards me, and when I said, all I want to do to sleep with the pigs. He says, absolutely not. The pigs are no place for you. You're my boy. You're my daughter. Like, think about that. Let that marinate in your own value. Like, it doesn't matter what even you did this morning or this afternoon or last night. Turn your face and he's going to come running. Make a decision and he's going to come running. You know, and I'm not talking about, like, church stuff here. I'm talking about real life. Like, that's the God of the universe. Not this, well, I got this big list of things you've done. That list went flying in the air the moment he saw you had started walking towards him in the horizon. Mm -hmm. You'll eventually deal with those issues, but right now I'm going to hug you, restore you, and welcome you home. Amen. That's the God of the universe, and that's what he wants, his relationship with you, with us, right? Right. Yeah. Right. It's so good. Hopefully that's valuable to you guys. Hopefully that brings you some thoughts. Absolutely. We are so grateful for your time, Dan. And we've got the Giving Experience Facebook group. You are welcome to hop on. We would love to see you there. And I'd like to add the video, if I'm able to get the documentary, your experience with training Chris to become the first ever Down Syndrome Ironman, because boy, what a story it is. And be able to hear Chris speak himself. Oh man, that's emotional and just so impactful to see. Okay, here's somebody that has a hard time even communicating just verbally, and yet they went through this whole transformation and just proved to the world of acts of faith and moving forward. So thank you for your leadership through all of this, Dan. Thank you for sharing your heart and your stories with us today. This was super impactful. And on that note, you want to send us out, Brent? You know, guys, before you do, obviously, I know that some of the things we talked about today could shake people. And so I want to, number one, tell everybody like, Friend me on Instagram. If you send me a message on Instagram, 
I 100% will respond. But if you think a phone call is necessary, my phone number is 407-923-1122. And if what you heard today was like, I want to do something like that. I want to get behind that. But you know what? I don't have the time or I don't have the physical ability or I don't have whatever. And you'd like to donate to help the next athlete, Miss Adrian Bunn, compete in the Ironman World Championship in October of uh, 2023, October 14th. You know, there's a, a website for her called Adrian Bunn. So it's A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E-B-U-N-N.com. Mm-hmm. And you can donate and be part of her racing and changing the world for people with autism now. Oh, that's So awesome. thank you so much, guys. And, and please take us out. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate your time today and just your love and grace for those around you and all that you do. And as always, if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe below so you don't miss the next one. And if you're willing, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. We want your stories. Do you have one to share or someone else's that needs to be shared? Leave us a comment below and email us at story at thegivingexperience.org. And remember, give cheerfully and expect a miracle because one is on its way. 